Morning, everybody. My name's Pete, and um, I'll be sharing part four of our series called Your Turn today. Thank you, Jan, for that beautiful, uh, sincere, and thoughtful prayer. So good to be able to turn to God. Um, let's do that again. Let, I'd like to just pray now about what we're going to share this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this gathering of people who've come together to hear your word this morning. I pray that we'll let it touch us. And I pray that what's said this morning is pleasing to you. Amen. So today we're looking at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And it's the final chapter of what we believe is the Apostle Paul's last writing, completed sometime in the years prior to his death, around 68 AD. When Danny introduced this series four Sundays ago, uh, he told a story about when his mother-in-law was passing away and how all the members of the family were just wanting to spend that, uh, that last time with her because they wanted to just soak up what she had to, to share um, and let her touch their lives one last time. And it was a very moving story. And as we read Second Timothy, especially this last chapter, we have a similar sense of a momentous occasion. In this chapter, Paul talks about being poured out like a drink offering and that uh, the time for his departure is near. So we're really hanging on his words as we read this chapter because he's imparting to us the stuff that really matters, that he wants to get across as a, as a final message. But right alongside that powerful last teaching, we also see a glimpse of the man himself. This chapter contains a number of personal remarks and we're literally getting a peek into his personal correspondence with his fellow missionary Timothy. And because of this, we see not just his teaching, but uh, a glimpse of the man himself and his character. So we're going to read through the chapter in sections and uh, think about the meaning of each. So you can read along on the screen, or if you want to turn on your Bibles or open up your Bibles, uh, we're going to have a look at verse 1 and 2 to start with. Now, I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be mostly talking about verse 1 and 2. We might be 10 minutes in, and you're thinking, this guy's only up to verse 2, and I'm looking at 22 verses in this chapter, and might be giving me a wind-up. We're going to focus on verse 1 and 2, and if you've got a roast in the oven, you'll be right. Okay, let's read from chapter 4. Paul says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Preach the word. That's Paul's message to Timothy and to the early church and to us today. That's what matters most. Let people know that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled with God, that we can be transformed, that we can be living in hope. This is what he tells us to share with people. And that's what Paul's dedicated the last 30 years or so to doing with his own life. And he's travelled the known world. 
teaching and writing so that both Jews and Gentiles could get this message. He's been beaten and starved and shipwrecked and imprisoned and persecuted for this message about Jesus. And right to the last, he believes that that's what matters most. What does it mean to be prepared to preach in season and out of season? In season and out of season means when the message of God's word is welcome and when it's not. So right now, I'm preaching to you from God's word and I'm not really expecting you to persecute me or mock me for it. There might be all sorts of other things that you might mock me about. <laughs> but, but we're in church and we're mostly comfortable with the idea that we're hearing God's word. We're in season, so to speak. But what about when it's not welcome? What about when speaking up for God is not okay? When it's not in season? When it's not popular? What about when those who disagree with us are influential, intelligent, intimidating... And we feel uncomfortable speaking or living in a way that declares our commitment to the gospel. Increasingly, the individual and collective voices of Christianity will be speaking into a culture that is not paying attention. Two-thirds of non-Christians in Australia don't have a single close friend who is a Christian. Let that sink in. Two-thirds of non-Christians don't have a single close friend who is a Christian. And most non-Christians in Australia would sum up Christianity's main belief as be good and you'll go to heaven, be bad and you'll go to hell. That's a serious misunderstanding, isn't it? Greg Sheridan, a journalist from The Australian who uh, last year published God is Good For You, he says, we have a generation who know almost nothing of the content of Christianity. And yet it is foundational for so much of Western culture and society and thought. Australia is becoming post-Christian. Here's a few stats from the census. From 2011 to 2016, Australians identifying themselves as Christian fell from 61% to 52%. And simultaneously, those saying they had no religion climbed from 22% to 30%. Why this recent erosion of faith in Australia? A positive interpretation might be that people are just being more honest than they have been in the past. You know, they might be less inclined or less obligated to tick a box, a religious box, if they've been baptised as an infant or if their parents were married in a particular church or there's some historical connection to a particular denomination. They're not feeling compelled to identify with that. Actually, now in Australia, the majority of marriages and funerals are not conducted in churches. But more than just seeing faith as irrelevant, I think there's a suspicion in our society that there might actually be something sinister going on in amongst all of that. And fair enough. The devastating findings of a royal commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse are going to rightly cause suspicion. And in Australia, Christian institutions have got some serious work to do in rebuilding trust. So when we speak as Christians today, we are going to experience being out of season more and more, not so welcome. And being too vocal about your faith 
might leave you playing all by yourself. How would you feel if you were, say, writing a letter to the Warrigal Gazette upholding a faith-based position? You'd get some feedback in the following weeks, wouldn't you? And it might not all be friendly. How would you feel about speaking out against some unethical action in your workplace because your faith demands it? It could be uncomfortable. What if you're at a social gathering, a, a, a dinner party or a barbecue or something, and you're the only one who holds a biblical view on some social or moral issue? If you speak up, things might get really quiet, <laughs> really awkward. But at least we're not fearing for our lives. Paul and his followers were. He has been willing to preach out of season. It's possible that at the time of writing, Paul himself was under sentence of death because many in Rome did not want to hear Paul's preaching. The Roman Empire had many gods, and you could worship any you wanted so long as your first loyalty was to Rome. If you were a Christian in, in first century Rome and you refused to participate in the pagan feasts or refused to make offerings to other gods... That would make you unpopular. Worshipping Jesus as king above Caesar, well, that did not go down well. Caesar was supposed to be God. And messages such as the equality of all humankind, the fact that men and women, slaves and free, are all equal in Christ, well, that's a very disruptive message to the power structures and the economies of the day. In first century Rome, Christians will tell you a slave can be equal to a senator. They will tell you that being a Christian is being more than a conqueror. And the Roman historian Tacitus described early Christianity as a mischievous superstition because it actually undermined the powerful. Christianity was more than just unpopular in the 60s of the first century. It was dangerous. In 64 AD, much of Rome was destroyed in the Great Fire. And it was thought to be started by Nero himself. And he gutted 10 out of 14 districts of Rome. However, blame for the arson was officially put on Christians. And they were hated for it. The annals of Tacitus record Nero's persecution of Christians at this time. It's pretty gory. He wrote that covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. So Roman torches of the the 60s of the first century weren't a firework, Roman candles, I mean. They were Christians burning on the streets uh, during the night. So here in Warrigal today, far removed from Rome of the first century, we do not experience direct persecution. But I think our society expects our beliefs to be private. And certainly any expression of Christianity is increasingly unwelcome in the public square. I think our society would say, go ahead and believe, but keep it to yourselves. It's your business. What does Paul say? Preach! Get it out there. Share it. Let's not forget how he says to do it. He says, 
with great patience and careful instruction. When we do share God's message, we do it out of love, right? Not out of a desire to win an argument or to manipulate someone um, or to justify ourselves, to convince ourselves that we've uh, won a trophy or something. I remember being a keen Christian at university and staying up late in student lounges and pubs and having arguments with my non-Christian friends. But I eventually learned that we don't want to win arguments and lose people. People don't respond to Jesus by being outwitted. People respond to Jesus when they meet Jesus in us. Paul says, be patient. Be careful. Live and speak God's word. Share it. but Do it well. Do it sensitively. Do it for someone else's eternity, not for your own pride. I recently heard an example that says a secular person encountering Christianity should be like our experience of a high jump mat. I'm sure most of you have experienced this at some stage. A high jump mat is big. It's weighty, it's substantial, and it's not easily pushed around. You'll know that if you ever had to pack up after athletics day at school. But when you encounter it, it's soft, it's safe, and it's life-giving. Our message in our society has weight and has substance, and it's not easily swept aside. But people should experience it gently. Okay, that's, we've done two verses, <laughs> we'll move on. Let's read three to five now. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry. Okay, we're going to do a little experiment now. Just clasp your hands together. Or if you're holding something, that's okay. Just hold it with both hands. And just close your eyes just for a sec. And I want you to think about which bit of your body is itchy. Just think about that. I'm doing it too. and Actually, my hip's a bit itchy now that I think about it. All right. You can open your eyes. Let go of your hands. Hands up if you felt itchy somewhere. That's amazing. That makes me feel like I've got a superpower of making people feel itchy. But it's really just about what we're paying attention to, isn't it? And we know what would fix it. A good scratch would just fix that straight away. And this is what Paul's talking about here. Preach the true gospel because a false gospel will be preached. The message that itchy ears want to hear. What are the things that we're itching to hear? Where do our souls need a bit of a a scratch? There's all sorts of things that we're we're just dying to, uh, to have satisfaction in. We want to be flattered. We want to be desired. We want our egos to be stroked. We want to matter to people. We want to be entertained. We want to hear juicy gossip. 
And we want to hear the secrets of the good life. And there's false gospels of all sorts that are speaking messages into that. The things our ears are itching to hear are declared on magazine covers, on Facebook pages, on billboards and news feeds and self-help books and even in churches. And it scratches where we're itching because they tell us that we can have whatever we want. And that's a lie that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We don't have time to explore that now. But people are interested in hearing what they want to hear. And on the whole, people are less interested in hearing that we are sinners in need of a saviour. We don't want to confront the wrongness and the brokenness of our own lives. But when we see how Jesus has paid the price for that, that's the good news. You know, the, the word gospel means good news. That's the gospel message. It's good news that Jesus has dealt with all of that. And Paul warns us against the hype and the popularity of false gospels. And he just reminds us to get on with the job. He says, keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That's what he's saying to Timothy. Just get on with the job and teach them the truth. And again, Paul leads the church not just with his teaching but by his example. Let's read verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knows that his days are numbered, but he also knows that he has lived out his faith and he knows assuredly what lies ahead. And he encourages us too that this reward is its not just for him, but for all who respond to Christ and long for his appearing. Okay, we'll read now right through the whole personal remarks section at the end of the chapter. And as you read this, you could be thinking, I wonder why this is actually in the Bible. But if it's there, if God has seen fit to reveal it to us, then we should consider it. Uh, So let's pick it up at verse 9. And we'll read right through to the end of the chapter. Personal remarks. By the way, this has got a lot of um, uh, historical names and places. And I I might butcher the pronunciation of this, but I'm just going to say it confidently and push on. Okay, here we go. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. 
But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. I think there's at least two things that we can take away from reading those personal remarks of Paul. Uh, Firstly, the Bible is just keeping it real. This type of content gives the letter a ring of authenticity and a really personal touch. It reminds us that the Bible is divine revelation, but also human expression. And here we see an intimate portrait of an ageing man. He's feeling the cold. He wants his cloak before winter, who's been hurt by certain people and troubled by false teachers. But until the last, he is preaching the good news of Jesus, and he's urging us to do that as well. Paul is practicing what he preaches. And I think we can be moved by his dedication to what matters most. So many of us, as we age, uh, tend to think that life is now about my comforts. It's my time and I've done my bit. Not Paul. He's conscious of time running out. He's doing the stuff that matters most. Jan prayed beautifully about this before that the older people among us would keep outreaching and would keep serving Um, i'm sure there's many challenges that come with being an older person i'm sure i'll find out soon enough but we are inspired by those people among us here who just keep doing the stuff that matters most who are living for others and living for the gospel and sharing and serving because of that's what's on their heart The second thing that I really want to emphasize about these personal remarks from Paul is that this passage reveals to us that Paul himself is thoroughly transformed by the gospel. He's urging us to preach the gospel and we can see here it's because of his own personal transformation. It's fair to say that Saul, as he was previously known, was a hater. He was a persecutor. In Acts chapter 7, he was there giving approval, cheering them on when the first martyrdom happened and they smashed in the skull of Stephen. And then the next chapter of the book of Acts, in chapter 8, he sets about destroying the church. He goes from home to home, persecuting, arresting, imprisoning Christians. He was a man who crushed his opponents. He was a hater. And now, in this final glimpse of Paul's life, what does he become? He loves. He gives thanks to God. He puts his trust in God. He has affection for his fellow believers. He's a completely changed man. And his opponents? Well, he still has them. There are false teachers out there like Alexander the metalsmith. 
we don't know for sure what he did to oppose Paul's message, but we, we do know that metalsmithing in the first century was often about making idols that would be sold for profit. We don't really know. But somehow he undermined Paul's teaching. And what does Paul want him stoned or arrested? No. He says, be on your guard against that stuff. But then he trusts that it, God's divine justice will prevail rather than urging human retaliation as he once would have. And what about the other people who've heard him, the ones who didn't show up to support him at his trial in Rome? That's obviously hurtful. Their fear or their selfishness overcame their loyalty to him. And how does this one-time hater and retaliator respond to the fact that some of his friends have abandoned him? He says, may it not be held against them. This is a spirit of grace shown in a man who once held such hatred. And it's reminiscent of Jesus on the cross praying about those who crucified him. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. See, the gospel has transformed Paul. He's become like Christ. And that's why, until the very end of his life, he's passionate about sharing God's word. Are we? Do we know this personal transformation? Do we know what we'd be without Jesus? And do, know, do we know what we've truly become because of him? If so, let's follow Paul's teaching and preach the word in season and out of season. Jesus himself said, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if our hearts really dwell on what Christ has done for us, it should spill naturally over into the lives of those around us through our words and through our loving actions. So let me finish now with Paul's own final words recorded in the Bible. Grace be with you all. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pete.